Well, I originally got into the hospitality industry to earn money while I was at uni. Social life, it's my life, it's good fun, meet his people. The top jobs, I would say... I would want to be a licensee. Opening a small wine bar of my own. Why? 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 My name is Luke Butler and you're listening to the Why Hospitality Podcast. Today's guest is a gentleman by the name of Michael Rodriguez, and Michael is the founder and managing director of Time Out Australia. And Time Out's uh, history or interaction with the with the hospitality scene in Australia has been pretty significant and grown since the publication's inception here in 2007. And Mike's role within that organisation and, and uh, as a result within the hospitality industry has become really quite significant and essentially transcended what you would uh, believe to be or understand to be a, a typical relationship of a media outlet within an industry um, where he now interacts very heavily with operators across multiple different sectors within the Australian hospitality and leisure um, industry. And more recently, Mike has been been uh, very heavily involved in the compliance topics that are affecting um, Sydney in particular uh, and has become quite uh, quite active when it comes to pulling together people from different parts of the industry and helping to create uh, essentially one voice that can go to different regular, regulatory bodies and, and push the agenda to help relax and um, and curtail some of the the laws and um, conditions that have been placed on businesses, and really helping to raise awareness um, of these issues, uh, it, it, with a view to create some some positive change and a, and a better outcome for people who have a vested interest in this. Um, and that spans businesses and general public who simply want to go out and have a good time. So Mike has very, uh, as always, um, has, has very kindly volunteered his time. Um, the conversation covers hospitality as a whole. It covers staffing. It covers, um, of course, the compliance topics and his journey through Time Out, which has been you know, quite an interesting one. So... Without further ado, here is our conversation or my conversation with Michael Rodriguez. Why? Uh, my name is Luke Butler, and today I'm joined by Mr. Michael Rodriguez. Say hi, hi Luke. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so traditionally, we're, uh, I would be joined by Warren, and Warren's not here. Um, unfortunately, it's two in a row that he's missed, so I think he's essentially going to be fired from the podcast. Um, <laughs> But, mate, thanks for joining us. Um, do you want to kick off uh, retrospectively, or actually I can look into the future and say that I will have announced your um, background and profile already for people listening to this, but in your own words, do you want to tell us uh, a bit about yourself, where you've come from, what your career journey has looked like, and how you ended up where, you, where you've ended up? So I came in from the side, I guess. I was... Uh, intermedia and I guess as part of time out we we do a lot in hospitality but I began life um, off the back of an engineering and law degree at university which which um, my dad good Indian man spotted a bargain and said two professions for the price of one (laughs) in fact it was two professions for the price of two as my hex debt would later reveal but um, uh, where was it that you studied at UNSW here in Sydney and then um, Spent a few years working on the construction for the Sydney Olympics on the rail rail project going out to the um, 
the Homebush Bay Precinct, and yeah. then um, and then uh, found myself. Um, as a lawyer at Allen's, which is one of the city law firms here in Project Finance, and then um, did that for a few years before heading off to Dubai, like most Aussies, trying to get out of out of Sydney to yeah. go to London. They weren't hiring, but Dubai was, and it was an opportunity to uh, work in a, another country, which I leapt at. And um, which found, did you go there as a as an a engineer, yeah. Lawyer, right? yeah, as a Project Finance lawyer, um, and uh, found myself. Um, working again on sewerage projects, which seems to have been a common theme for me. Um, I, I uh, was, became known as the sewerage guy doing project, project <laughs> financing for sewerage projects. And, um, and really it was there that I came across the opportunity to launch Time Out here in Australia yeah. um, and uh, went and pitched for the rights and got them. And um, let's just say have been knee deep in shit ever since. Um, <laughs> so then, then so Time Out kicked off um, in 2007. Yeah. Um, and which is around the time that the small bar scene was given life to. Yeah. Um, and it became a natural pillar for our business at the time. Publisher needs something to say. There's some new movement going on in town. Yeah. Bars is a very time out um, thing. And so we, we really launched um, the mag off the back of, of that um, um, uh, movement, I yeah. suppose, and, and have grown up with, with that ever since. And, yeah. um, and I suppose uh, what time out, does fundamentally is um, in, tries to inspire people to go out and have fun in their city and we want people to have the best experience they can yeah. so in order to do that you need to have a pretty good knowledge of what is going on and then you can just take that to the next level mm -hmm. um, by burrowing down 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 and deep into an industry and yeah. um, having been exposed to the bar scene for a really long time I guess we just sort of found ourselves naturally um, uh, aligned with and getting more and more involved in, in, in hospitality in Sydney and then yeah. ultimately in Melbourne. Um, yeah, right. So that was about eight years worth since 2007. Yeah. Um, and then um, today we, uh, we, we're no longer the licensee. We started the business as the licensee here, but uh, yeah. last year we sold the business back to Time Out Group and so now we run it here. I run it here on their behalf. Yeah. Um, Yep. So you're you're the managing director of Time Out Australia. So, yeah. Um, we'll go back into the detail of this, but I guess to give some definition around your perspective, you're also uh, is there a specific title in relation to your role within the Keep Sydney Open movement? Um, I mean, you're at the, at the end of it, but is there is, yeah, there's is no, there a, no. a hierarchy or a structure involved? It is just. You're just doing your thing. Yeah, just doing my thing. So, yeah. like, I'm not officially part of Keeps in the Open. Um, right. We, I'd say that I'm a, along with many people in our industry and um, a concerned citizen and someone who wants to see change in Sydney um, to mm. bring us back or take us forward. I guess from this point to the city that we landed in when we launched Time Out and um, you know we've seen a change markedly in that time yeah. as a result of many things but um, you know uh, so it keeps it in the open I think is an expression of intent um, as much as it is a movement and now a political party I think Tyson's um, um, formed a political party around that right. um, my involvement really is um, I've just come in the last well it's been I've been relatively active for three or four years uh, lockout um is not a great thing if you're time out because you want people out having fun, not mm. being sort of restricted in that. Yeah. Um, within, we would argue, um, uh, not necessarily on the reasonable terms, you know, obviously there needs to be a balance. Um, but, um, you know, so we've sort of been around 
lobbying at various levels, but not being a lobbyist, kind of making plenty of mistakes in the meantime about how to go yeah. <laughs> do that. But uh, yeah, definitely active um, as a media voice. And then I yeah. think you're, what you're referring to is sort of the last few months, which is um, things have been heating up um, and there's no official capacity um, for me there, just other than the guy that's responsible for running time out here and who yeah. cares deeply that um, people can keep going out and having fun in a city. Yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of taken us into, um, you know, uh, working closely um, with other aligned parties, of which there are many. Yeah. Um, including, um, you know, someone like Justine at Solitel, a yeah. person with 32 venues across the city, bars, restaurants and pubs. We see eye to eye on many things, and so I'd sort of put myself in that kind of um, category of someone who's who's wanting to see change and yeah, then just right. finding the right people and saying how can we work together to make this happen. Okay. Mm. Um, before we go any further, you have bought, brought some drinks, which um, you know it's a typical part of this process when we're having a podcast and summers you know, devised purely for my benefit. But you've um, gone against the. Trend, you bucked the trend of bringing wine and brought us something a little bit special. Do you want to just talk us through what you actually brought? Yeah, well, I thought I'd sort of not not had to our, our heritage in the yeah. city, and so I um and truly we've got like some of the world's best bars um in yeah. Sydney and Melbourne um and uh, so and, and and some of the best bar people really so. Um, Tim Phillips down at, um, well, Tim Phillips Johansson, I should say, down at um, Bulletin Places uh, has pre-bottled some cocktails for us. I think it's called the Full Hippie, which I think is a reference to you there, Luke. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a, well, it's not me, clearly. Um, but uh, it's, it's labelled Aussie Gin, Nettle Tea, Pear Wine, Ascorbic Acid, um, and um, Frog Skin Melon. So... Um, the instructions are simply to open the bottle and pour it out, which I think is probably about my level of competence behind the bar. But yeah. I'll um, and I'll, then drink, and and well, the drink part we can both do. So okay. let's um, let's grab oh, one and oh, get into it. Um, that was nice of you to do that for you or for us. Yeah, well, I think that like the small bar scene um, is a um, well, cheers, awesome, yeah. cheers. I mean, the small small bar scene is like a. Yeah, it's almost adolescent in a way. Um, yeah. You know, it's sort of most of these bars are five to six years old, max, mm. and um, and they've uh, you know I guess early in their development had something come along, i.e. liquor freeze and lockout, yeah. and um, changed fortunes a bit. Um, and um, yeah, I think that they're an important part of the fabric of the city. And um, you know, anything we can do to support them um, is, mm. is a good thing. So. I'm a little nervous about this conversation purely because I think we could really become quite tangential. Yeah, there's, sure. There's a whole whole range of different paths that we could go down. Yeah. I'm going to go down one of them that's not in order of what we've said we're going to talk about, but um, talking about the small bar scene and people like Tim Phillips, we interviewed Jason Williams mm. um, for this podcast. He's left Sydney and now in Singapore with a proven company, so responsible for some pretty amazing bars. Um, I, just, I think from memory it was like seven in the top 50, world's top 50. Um, we were talking about the fact that the small bar scene has probably regressed um, a little bit and, and we spoke about Tim Phillips because he was an individual who had risen to prominence really quite quickly, uh, opened a couple of venues. There were other examples, Jared Molino, um, obviously the guys from Swill House and individuals within that business that represent some of their venues. That's seemed to have stopped a little bit over the last 
maybe 18 months, I guess. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but what's your perspective on that? Because you're really well engaged with those um, operators. Yeah. Do yeah. you agree with that assumption? Yeah, your observation is largely right. Yeah. yeah, observation is largely right. Um, the timing is, you know, probably semantic, really, but like... Uh, what happened after so liquor freeze preceded lockout actually and this mm. was like some blanket prohibitions on the grant of new licenses or changes to existing licenses and um and um, lockout sort of came along and i think put the nail in the coffin of um something that was already um been quite a challenging situation for bars um so when it happened classic Sydney Australia attitude is I should be right so they didn't actually slow down the bar openings continued mm. but then sort of a year or two afterwards the challenges manifested and precincts started dying so people would stop going out because choices were becoming limited yeah. the ecology of the places that you would go out isn't just about the bar or the restaurant it's about the service that sort of support that all this has been talked about and so, um, you know, that um, sort of really stymied the industry, yeah. um, I would say, uh, at that pointy end of town. Yeah. Um, other operators um, have, you know, gone and set up outside and, you know, so the growth in the bar scenes really happened in Newtown and Enmore yeah. in that time. And, um, um, and we uh, just had our 10th Bar Awards and, um, you know, made a point of really amping, amping up the new bar category this year because we had seen a few more new openings than we had in the last year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, which is good. And I think that's just people adapting to the new environment and, you know, um, um, as better able to understand the risks involved and thinking about things as opposed to just plowing on, which is what happened for a while. But, but long and the short of it is that um, it's just not, uh, the current environment is not conducive mm. to um, innovation. Um, experimentation um, and all those things that make it for a dynamic city or yep. a dynamic scene yeah and so it's unfortunate but understandable that the likes of uh, widget and Jason Williams and others have um, you know moved to other markets um, mm. taking great talent and doing great things in competitive cities to Sydney that's yep. great for a Sydney cider to know that like our best talent is potentially over in Singapore building a bar scene that now could have been the bar scene we had here Absolutely. Um, and um, I hope we will see again um, soon. Do you still think there are the younger Jason Williams and Tim Phillips coming up through the industry? Do you, do you see the profiles of individuals rising? I mean, Jason's perspective of, of it was that there, there isn't. Um, that there's, it's almost, you could almost align it to what you see in the culinary world in there was a period where these people became essentially like rock stars, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like celebrity bartenders, yeah. maybe not with the same profile as some of the celebrity chefs. Yeah. And then there were individuals coming or a generation coming behind them that were um, more attracted to that, uh, what, what the actual outcome was as opposed to the work that had to go into actually reaching that kind of level or, or stature or, or recognition. Um, yeah. Do you agree with that or, uh, or not? Yeah, look, I... I, I um, I don't, I don't know that I can comment with authority on it. What I will mm. say is that there are a lot of good people out still having a go. Um, yeah. But uh, the firstly, secondly, the um, but the, the business um, environment is not strong, which means that the investment level that owners and others can put into their business around everything. Mm. I'm talking about quality of produce 
painting the walls, etc. Yeah, becomes challenging, right? Yeah. And it's more manifestly obvious to me uh, in wider hospitality. So moving out from beyond the bar scene now into um, the general state of yeah. uh, employment in the market, um, you know, there's a shortage of talent. Yeah. Um, and um, and in, you know, I don't know. Well, I think there's a few 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 factors driving that. Um, you know, I've talked about some of those. Maybe mm. we'll talk about them again. But yeah, I think um, you, if you want to be good at anything, you need, and um, you know, in, across any sphere, you need a, an ecosystem that supports and encourages the behaviour of the uh, outcome you're trying to produce. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Melbourne's bar scene at the moment, on that analysis. Um, would be a better place for that um, that development, um, yeah. and and definitely um, you know that has not slowed down. I don't think in terms of mm-hmm. um, you know bar innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think um, now we got onto that one. But definitely, I think that like there is yeah, it's inevitable, isn't it? There's going to be a talent shortage and a lack of ambition that ultimately arises if if what you want to do can't be done. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Analogous to this, and I'm sidetracking now, but in terms of the live music discussion that sort of engulfed the um, uh, current debate on lockout and is now front page of the newspaper, and even Alan Jones is jumping in on board now. Mm. Like, there was a, I think, a teacher, a music teacher on, on his show commenting yeah. on the challenge he has explaining to his students about where they're actually going to play and perform, you know. 61% of venues or something have closed yeah. in the last few, few years. Um, so, and so I don't know what the talent situation is in the music in the, world, but yeah. if you can't go and do what it is you want to do, why would you stay? It's really interesting, actually, because it's not featured as a huge part of the talent topic, mm. but obviously, you, you know, you would have to assume that it is mm. if, uh, if the number of businesses that are able to operate, if the investment into those businesses is reduced, I'm sorry, number of businesses is reduced, investment into them is reduced, uncertainty around the market, you know, from, from a um, younger generation's perspective in terms of limiting their willingness to move mm. into a sector because they're not sure of its, its long-term viability, yeah. you know, that's probably as much to do with the talent shortage in the market as anything else. Yeah, maybe gilding the lily on it a bit, but you know, if you can see that the guys that are going, before, guys and girls going before you are going into multiple venues and, you know, uh, being recognised and evolving, mm. that motivates you as an up-and-comer in any in the industry, Absolutely. as an engineer or a lawyer or whatever it is people have done. If you can see a pathway, you'll progress. If, and what I fear is happening in Sydney at the moment, and Sydney, it is that great land of everyone's always a positive, mm. the reality for businesses in this sector F&B, my assessment, is that things aren't rosy and um, that if you're a junior person working in that environment, looking at the stress on your boss of how to make <laughs> ends meet, why would you want that? You know? Yeah. And um, I think that the there's something very different to um, surviving versus thriving. Yeah. You know, and I think that people are resilient and um, inventive and that's good, um, but I think there's a limit to it, right? Like you can't, um, you can't sort of sustain that pressure for a long period of time. In a startup business, um, you know, most of them are sort of destined not to work um, numerically, but um, there is that three to five years of sweat equity, or um, uh, yeah, as they call it, and people give 
a lot of their discretionary time and so forth. But that's not about that's not sustainable business in the long term. So it's no wor- no wonder then that there's been so many closures of venues mm. um, at, that have sort of of that age um, because push comes to shove, like um, you know why it's just just too hard. Well, I mean, it's again another interesting point, and like I said, we're probably digress a lot, <laughs> but uh, the surviving versus thriving topics, um, one that is really important, I think, because you, if I think back to my time in the industry, mm-hmm. I really exited the industry two years ago, but the nature of working in hospitality changed significantly with the implications or the introduction of these mm. regulations because it stopped being about creating a great experience for people in particular in the roles that I was in yeah. I think sort of you know I remember cargo in the top 48 when we were on the list of the top 48 mm. you know mm. wrongfully so but we were we got off it within a year but that year we yeah. shifted focus from trying to create a great experience to becoming the fun police because you had to. Yeah. And for an individual working in that environment, it became much less enjoyable. And you were really focusing on surviving and staying off the police radar mm-hmm. as opposed to you know, really focus on music atmosphere, the well-being of patrons, all of those bits and pieces, the conversations with dominated about compliance. Yeah. And that would be the case for most venues, I think, within the city Centre or, or they experience a high traffic, a high patronage flow. Um, I still do. I still do some consulting to a couple of businesses, and one of them is a late night trading venue mm-hmm. that has licensing police there all the time, every Friday, Saturday night. And uh, they're, they're, you know, ninety percent of what we talk about is compliance, as opposed to what better products could be put in. You know, how can we better just develop staff culture? Those things still feature, but. Without the compliance side, the compliance topic is the number one thing threatening that business. Yeah, and in, I don't know. As a customer in a bar that has the police in it, it's a stressful experience because mm. you're um, you may just be having one or two drinks, um, um, but it's just not a nice, um, especially if it's a and I pick bars specifically, right? Because there's generally small venue, so the police presence feels quite big. Whereas in a large scale venue, you're not going to necessarily feel feel that. You may not see it even. Yeah. But um, if it's stressful for me as a customer, I'd hate to think of how stressful it could be to the duty manager to have to deal with the multitasking of we're doing everything we're meant to and serving drinks. You know, it's it's um and I think that uh, we haven't really explored this in any of the work that we're doing at the moment. But uh, in terms of the stress that puts on staff and whether that then impacts the desirability of those roles but definitely the um the sentiment um is coming through loud and clear around um police practice um and in terms of uh it being i choose my words carefully here because i think we all accept and understand the reason for policing and Mm. um but but um you know the police practice is not uniform um it is uh, across across area come come down to the local area command, but universally the feedback we're getting is that um, we think that there's an overreach um, given particularly the context of quality venues with zero um, incidents in most cases. Um, mm. So yes, a um, bit of a digression, but um, yeah, I think that the, all these things may, may have a bearing on sort of talent um, mm. at the end of, at the end of the day. You had an event last Monday night. Um, 
focused on well actually you, you can you know I guess yeah so so the, the summary here firstly and I'll take the opportunity and without insulting your listeners there's there's you need to understand the difference between the city of Sydney on the one hand and New South Wales state government on the other yeah um, and the different roles that they play and um, so uh, and and sometimes they overlap and they correlate but um, the long and the short of it is that as far as some of these major reforms that I think the hospitality sector is after most of them the real power lies with the state government not the city of Sydney mm. and um, and if you think about your night out and what that involves transport state government issue um, policing and their intervention state government issue yeah um, certain elements of planning liquor licensing state and um, so what is going and I, I'm, I was maybe the foolish one but I spent a lot of my time you know, preaching to the choir at the city of Sydney. Um, everyone over there is in rough agreement around what we would like to see. Um, not speaking for the city of Sydney, but that's my sentiment. Yeah. Um, but what's going on at the moment is an inquiry into the museum arts economy and uh, the public hearing of which occurred last Monday. And that's a state government inquiry. Um, yeah. And uh, whether or not that's the intention was really for for me, I saw it as an opportunity to um, raise lockout and the related issues as part of the music and arts economy um, because yeah. for the reasons that we're talking about, you've got live music venues closing down, why are they closing down, precincts are being affected, people aren't going out. Yeah. You know? So there's a bunch of complicated issues going on. Um, and uh, so, so that was the hearing and then the event we had last uh, Monday um, was under the banner of what we're calling right to dance um let me just explain that um yeah. or you can jump on the website right to dance.sydney and uh in the process of getting submissions into government we conducted a round table back in february and one thing i've i feel like i'm a bird that goes between different industries right so the fmb side music industry the arts and entertainment industry um even into property development other is where my job is the time out takes me and what occurred to me is that there's a lot of talking in silos, but very few people coming together and exchanging views from a broad-based um, group of sectors. Yeah. So, sector. So, so um, our ambition um, as time out has been really to try and facilitate that discussion, um, because what I can tell you and what we're all beginning to see is that everyone's common enemy, if you uh, someone who has a venue, is the couch combined with Deliveroo and Netflix. That's what, that's the choice, right? Like yeah. what we are all battling over is to get people out of the house and into artistic institutions, concerts, um, or venues. Yeah. And, and what's happened in the last few years, which has compounded the problem, is that the offer at home has never been better. You can sit back and get a Mary's Burger from Deliveroo and watch the House of Cards for all under 20 bucks. It's, mm. and, and so when you say to an audience, come out and maybe have a pretty crap time and we're going to overcharge you for it as a city, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to stay at home. Mm. So part of the um, roundtable process threw up some of the most absurd um, development restrictions we'd ever heard, including what is now being referred to as Mirrorball Gate. And that's <laughs> yeah. come not from me, although I was pleased to um, see it, but from uh, um, Taylor Martin, who was uh, the Liberal parliamentarian um, on the committee, who um, wants to know now about any absurd um, venue restrictions. So it's yeah. a positive sign because some of them that we've heard have been just anything short of ridiculous. The mirrorball thing appears to be um, 
uh, coming from police who see Mirabool as representative of a nightclub environment and therefore um, not conducive to um, uh, the standards of behaviour that they, I guess, are trying to see the city adhere to. So, um, cliff on that, is that specifically <laughs> the standard of behaviour being uh, it causes dancing and dancing relates to drugs? Is that kind of what they're thinking? I think that that's one inference one could draw there, Luke. Um, 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 and I think to quote from the House of Cards, you might very well think that I couldn't possibly say. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is a, um, it is, um, it is. I, what we can say about it is it's a, um, it's coming from a, a harm minimisation perspective, right? And the question is, is how how balanced is that? And it isn't happening just once, um, as has now been documented again. The Sydney Fringe Festival ha- applied for a license to do an artistic dance in a warehouse yep. um, and the recommendation from the police apparently was um, that there be no dancing dancing in a warehouse equals a yeah, rave party rave yeah so and um, and we've heard about an Irish pub that um, can play music provided it's only Irish music we've heard of a, a club in Terrigal that um, can play music provided it isn't rock music um, and uh uh, you know, the Parliament has asked and we are facilitating um, and I invite any venues who are sort of experiencing mm. this type of um, um, absurd uh, provision, as I would call it, and I don't mean that respectfully, I think that some of these things are absurd, um, to, to submit them via uh, that website I mentioned, right to dance Sydney. Um, so... The event last Monday, under the banner of Right to Dance, was really about trying to encourage industry, um, and not just the F&B industry, but industry in the wider sense. So those participants in our uh, nighttime activities, yeah, um, to come together and um, try and get on the same page, really. Um, and if I can go into um, this one for just a minute, yeah. you know, you've got like the the bar, you've got the AHA on the one hand, a restaurant and catering association on the other hand, and bars who at the moment don't have an association. Now, uh, bar owners will mouth off to me about gaming and um, AHA, and I understand their um, uh, perspective on that, and I applaud them on the alternative environments that they're creating for others who see the world that way to enjoy, myself included. However, the common ground between the bar scene and the pub scene is that we want people out, yep. not in. So how can we get these guys talking to each other and coming together and presenting a united voice to government is the question. And then how do we get those guys talking to the arts and culture people and saying, you know what, um, hospitality is not at an all-time high in Sydney. So mm-hmm. when you're doing your next festival, rather than creating another festival pop-up bar, um, which creates a scene and hype and you get a caterer in and they cash in and a sponsor in and they cash in, can we not work together somehow um, to support that festival, right? Like, we've got the space, we've got the employees, um, uh, the police restrictions on these on pop-ups and so forth are pretty egregious. Yeah. You know, we'll give people a better experience working together. So that's one of the personal missions that I've set myself really is to try and get industry. We've got a job to do on government. They need to be educated. Yeah. Parliament need to be educated about what's going on, what the police force is doing, what re- regulatory barriers there are. But um, definitely industry has got to take on some of, um, 
thought leadership role in and of itself. Mm. And if it's not working the way we're doing it, find another way to work. Are you finding, you mentioned Justine, uh, she, when we interviewed her on the podcast, was saying that it was essentially time, that would have been last year, yeah, November, last year. I guess, yeah. I, I can't remember exactly, but she was saying it was time to start doing more, um, and obviously things have happened since then. However, you would look at the number of people that are currently involved in what you're doing, and it's not that there are notable absences, but there's certainly, you know, there's not um, as many people at the table pushing hard as you would suggest could or should be. Um, are there businesses that are that uh, afraid to get involved, or is it that they don't think it's going to do anything? Is the government being res- as receptive, um, or, or being receptive, or more receptive than they ha- as they ha- were previously, or are they still? Um, potentially not being receptive at all. Mm. What's the kind of sense that you're saying when you're trying to get people involved and then and, and, and how is government reacting to your message? Yeah, so, I mean, part of the... And definitely I don't have a background in political strategy, but I have a background in finding clever people and asking them questions and then um, involving them in, 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 in projects. And so uh, what we're conscious of is a state election, which should occur within 12 months. Yeah. And, um, and uh, there is an opportunity to... Um, draw awareness to this issue and make it an election issue um, and and you know for that to happen as I said Parliament need to at least be educated and get into an understanding of what is actually going on um, yeah. it'd be an interesting straw poll to work out how many parliamentarians actually go out in these areas that we're talking about on a regular basis um, Gladys has yet to respond to my polite invitation to come on me on a bar crawl. Um, maybe Alan Jones and I could take her out one night. That'd be an interesting, probably um, enjoy that more. interesting threesome. Um, so um, you know, there's there's a job with Parliament, as I mentioned, industry. I've talked about where really where this sits at is the voter level, and um, do punters care or not? You know, we uh, I'm conscious with you, you guys are working nationally. We're at a national publication. Um, we're talking about an issue that's affecting the immediacy of um, Sydney um, mm. and do 5 million people across New South whatever the number of voters are 3 to 4 million voters across New South Wales actually care about this or not is the question um, and really what I see is an opportunity given those factors given that you've got an election coming up given that um, there is a bit of groundswell occurring it's been hard work um, getting people around but that's what it takes mm. um, and, uh, and and literally forcing people into a room I think um, with uh, the submission process we nearly capped out at 400 submissions um, and definitely across the submissions that I was helped in preparing there was 80 signatures or so and they came from organisations including Sonos Australia um, Greencliff which is a developer of um, the precinct up there at Chippendale yep. Solitel amongst festivals, arts organisations, bar owners, um, Live Nation was another one that got involved with this process. It's coincided well with the Committee for Sydney. That's another organisation that I think is um, commenting uh, commentating very um, sensibly on um, these issues. The the sad part of it is it's not rocket science, you know. Like, I can talk to you for another five hours about it, I know, but I could also just point to Melbourne and another couple of other cities and say, see what's going on there. 
that's kind of what we need to do. Mm. But, you know, I think that um, in this city, it's just not, um, you know, the hut, when the sun is shining, the beaches are, are nice, you know, whereas in, in other parts of the world, they don't have that. So creating vibrancy is a real, um, a real objective. Yeah. So I think that, um, that the, there are, there's definitely levels of, um, conversation that are going on in the city that I'm not party to the way above my pay grade I think that they're occurring between gaming interests and um, uh, large-scale property development and government and I haven't yet found myself in a room like that yeah. um, so it'd be interesting to see how that conversation evolves um, but at least what we have now um, within the last week or two with the media coverage is that um, Parliament are now aware that there is an issue. Yeah. And um, it's unfortunate to talk about the basement, which is a venue that's just shut um, uh, its doors after 40, 45 years continuous operation. Um, and there is speculation exactly as to why, but the fact that we're having this conversation should tell us that we've got a problem here. Um, and um, as a result, there will be a... Uh, a rally at Parliament House next Thursday um, to, I guess, put to Parliament our views on that matter yeah. um, and encourage encourage the legislature to make some changes in the city. So, you know, if you're interested, that's something that, um, you know, people can look out for. And, uh, yeah, and that, that will keep up, keep the debate going. So, yeah, date, that's Thursday. Yeah, Thursday, I don't know, you... you, you Thursday the 12th, I think, of April. And what time is that starting? I am going to say 3.30 on that one. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, 3.30. Okay, awesome. Um, we'll put notes about that in the... Uh, or details about that in the show notes. Great. So everyone get involved with that one. Great, thank you. Why? It hadn't operated in Australia before you brought it uh, had, had it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. There'd been um, a guide published in 2000 for the Sydney Olympics, and that was right. the only use of the only authorised use of the brand here. Um, friends of Fairfax had um, been using the brand Time Out uh, and got into a trademark dispute, which ha- was happily resolved before we arrived. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so 2007, and um, oh, it's had everything. You know, this has been up, down, and, and around. Um, launching a media business on mm. the, on the eve of the GFC um, was the yeah. context. Um, I think our, our, I remember the 6th of August pretty, 2007 pretty well because I think I'd signed a lease here actually in the MLC for, for 20 odd people. We'd um, em- employed those 20 people. Um, we hadn't quite signed off on the franchise and nor had I quite signed off on the funding. Um, I flew to London and landed in Dubai and woke up and asked my uh, host what do you know about the subprime mortgage market? Um, because in that time, the subprime mortgage market collapsed and our funding had been pulled. Um, right. And so I had a few curly days in London, literally running away from the MD of Time Out International, who was asking me hard questions about where our cash was. <laughs> yeah, right. And the words, she'll be right, sort of came to mind. And, um, <laughs> and inevitably they were, but it, that was the, the infancy of Time Out. And yeah. uh, like a startup, you guys are sort of going through this, I guess. Like yeah. it's, um, it's a great energy associated with it. And... Um, the uh, opportunity to see change and you know we're an independent publisher coming into a space that we at that time would argue was pretty dominated by good food 
um, exclusively almost and um, we saw it as an opportunity to shake things up and and I think importantly um, present a wider entertainment experience. You know, Time Out, we're thought of here oftentimes as a, as a hospitality-led publication and we are because people in our markets love eating and drinking but Time Out's ethos is really about your overall experience on yeah. a night and so to us, um, you know, the art show and the galleries and and how it all comes together is really what we're about. It just tends to skew more heavily into the F&B side in this right. market. is isn't the same way in other markets. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, we kicked that off and uh, um, I don't know how long it's one. Well, we just bought a cocktail so I can tell you a little bit more. But, yeah, I, I, I've kind of had a bit of a tortured start to that because um, yeah. I really didn't know anything about publishing um, and some... Critics of mine would say I still don't, but we um we <laughs> why did you do it then if you didn't know what what was the impetus? Yeah, what was what was the where, where did your idea start? What it, made you actually do it in the first place? You've you've met you've met lawyers, right? Like there's not many that sit there going, I love my job, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, most right. of them most of them want to open a bar or a coffee shop. Um, that's a bit unfair to my legal fraternity, but they're not listening. Um, so we um we um Thanks, <laughs> we we um we um maybe they are we we um we um you know it, it was the opportunity really and for, for people that uh, do find themselves in a, that kind of um, uh, what's the word formulaic career path which yeah. is what the legal industry sort of has um, yeah. it just becomes a bit of a bit numbing really because good money dull work but the money gets better and you sort of end up finding yourself improving with age because the more you know the better lawyer you become yeah. in fact so I just, um, my parents were pretty entrepreneurial. Um, I guess I always think about immigrant parents as people, as the best entrepreneurs, to leave your country behind, landing here with 20 bucks in your wallet during the white Australia policy for me, my parents. Um, um, that's pretty entrepreneurial. Um, so, you know, um, they were a bit of a source of inspiration. And, um, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I just thought, like, the opportunity to launch Time Out was just, too good to pass up. Yeah. Um, and I thought if, if I didn't do it, someone else would do it. And um, and in the early days, I guess I had the ambition of, you know, I was sort of sub 30 those days, you know, you sort of, it is a bit ego driven. And if you don't have that, you probably wouldn't do something ambitious, you know, yeah. so you can't criticize that. But definitely I, I had visions of being out on that harbour um, pretty quickly you know, <laughs> yeah. on what motor launch that I'd bought with the proceeds of the sale but um, yeah. you know that was put paid to as I said you know before we'd even got out of the blocks really um, but I think what you know I thought about this in time and also in preparing for this the thing that um, uh, I, th I think about is you, that's why I got into it but why have I stuck at it you know mm. that's the, the other side of that and um, and uh, which, and it hasn't been easy, I think Tim Fishwick, who was on here, sort of alluded to that for me, um, in reference to me, but it's, I think about what Time Out is, and really what it is, is a hospitable publication. We want you to have fun. Mm. We want you to feel better as a result of reading us and doing something than you do right when you read us, right? Like, which really is what hospitality is. Hospitality's yeah. fundamental job is to make sure that people leave the space they come to feeling better. Whether it's drinking a pear nettle tea cocktail yeah. they're drinking now, or craft beer, or a glass of wine, or just engaging in good conversation with the host, right? So, Time Out's just this hospitable publication, and to yeah. think that um, my parents have been hospitable people, 
and I think that um, I've been known to throw a party or two so I think I found as my friend would say a job that suited my DNA Um, and um, I think that's really what sort of precipitated it and kept me going through hard times and good times Um, and uh, arriving till today but yeah that's what kicked it off in the first place. how did you muscle through a, or maybe you didn't, maybe you actually found it pretty easy, but going into a sector that you had zero, zero experience, yeah. experience yeah. or not maybe you did have some knowledge, right? that's an unfair assumption, but um, what was that like? Were there any things that you learned that could be, I guess, uh, adapted to listeners and mm. maybe experiences they're having, just in that top, top line kind of approach yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, I think, um, you know, firstly, you do well to inform yourself of things that you don't know about and be willing to admit that you don't, right, and find people around you who will. So my, my um, beginnings with this were really around finance and legal skills as opposed mm. to publishing know-how or, um, or any sort of sector, um, any sector knowledge. I mean, anything I'm telling you about the hospitality sector, I've really only learned in the last five years max. Because um, that was my first, my next question was, were you super passionate about hospitality before you went into time and oh. Or is that something that grew after you you launched? Yeah, I think that um, by my physical size, you can see that like I'm, I'm not um, averse to a good time eating and drinking. <laughs> so, um, um, you know, it. Uh, I had that level of engagement mm. with it. Um, I guess, um, I fell in love with it um, around the craftsmanship, really, of of bartenders. Um, I think, really, yeah, right. um, um, more so than than I think the eating side of it. Um, and and I suppose partly, like, uh, um, I think that anything that involves mastery um, is a really um, admirable thing and it's partly why I'm sort of um, irrespective of whether or not we get anywhere with our crack at lockout um, I I, I do feel passionate about the craft that the bar industry and the small bar industry apply because that's a really ridiculous business model these guys are going into right like it's one revenue stream and that's it yeah. To make something work off the back of it, you need to be a certain level of competence, and I mm. think that's really admirable. So I think that's really what I fell in love with watching and um, and learn learn through that through teachers, um, some of who you've had on your show. So um, that that sort of sparked the interest in it, and I think that um, going back to your question, which is really about um, you know when you from a from a career perspective, um, finding um, uh, being conscious of what you're not aware of either finding people around you um, that can supplement that knowledge which is what exactly what I did Um, but then and and I think I learned something valuable at this point is to never assume that that will get the job done so even as the proponent of the business you don't know how to do something find someone who can but also learn that job as you can yeah and it's not about distrusting but it's about um, having this ambition to understand things to a level of um, obsession. Yeah. And um, I think that I have um, and continually challenge myself to con- learn and learn and learn. And um, and I've done that, you know, obviously through formal education, but through the school of hard knocks that running a business is. But mm. um, definitely, 
and, and one thing I think that I am doing at the moment um, well in a way that other people may not have been able to do or if they have they haven't done it very actively and visibly is go between different sectors and speak with equal competence in F&B as I can in um, travel and hospitality, travel and in arts and culture. Yeah. I'm not the expert, the best industry expert in each of those, but I've achieved a level of understanding of how those sectors work mm. that allow me to draw parallels and, um, and speak with a certain degree of authority in them. Yeah. Such that people will listen to me and, 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 um, and then I can find how to connect the moves and shakers in one world with the moves and shakers in another. Why? Yeah, it must have given you a pretty unique uh, perspective, or well, clearly has. Uh, I mean, you're working with, uh, is a correct? Yeah, 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 a which is the hotel industry um, conference down in Melbourne next month, um, where I do an F&B panel, and I think um, Luke will be on that this year. Um, Luke Mangan, that is, yeah. again, um, talking about staff shortage, and we'll make sure you're on it next year. <laughs> I'll give you a heads up. Um, but yeah, that's a great example, and, you know, and I'll give you one correlation that... Um, I think, and I don't think this is controversial, hopefully it is, like, you know, well, one thing that this analysis has given me is an awareness of what happened in the hotel industry between Expedia, Booking.com and those OTAs. Yeah. Um, and they came along, saw all the unused inventory, asked everyone for it, and before the, industry, the hotel industry knew, they'd lost all brand connection with their customer and given yeah. it away to an intermediary which sounds really familiar with home delivery services and what they've come in and done in this marketplace. Yeah. Um, and Uber Eats, Deliveroo and um, Fudara, yes, they provide a service, but if you're anyone who peddles an experience um, of the manner in which that we're talking about in hospitality, why would you give away customer control and a lesser experience to an intermediary and not make any money from that? And um, the terms in which they've come in is pretty aggressive, as far as I know. Yeah. I've seen the decks, I've spoken to the industry about it. Not everyone's on the same um, tariff. But, um, and, 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 and as I said, what is our enemy here? Our enemy is encourage people to stay at home. Mm. And as an industry, we've come in and said, please stay at home. Oh, I'll actually send you my food. I'll send you my food. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not. I'm not having a go like there are opportunities, you know, it makes sense home delivery in certain circumstances, but um, the if, if as an industry, our bars, restaurants and hotels had sat down and thought about it and were actually communicating mm. with each other, they may have said, what do you think about this? And what terms should we tell Uber Eats, Deliveroo and Fedara they can enter the market? Mm. It's not going to be 30%, it's going to be 5% and you can fund your audience development. You know, that conversation never happened. Mm. And so now, you know, you're, there's another rod for um, uh, our back as an industry and precinct footfall in um, certain areas, I'm not going to mention because it's private information, but it's down as a result of it. Mm. Because once a consumer realises that its favourite Luxor can come to it immediately at the press of a button, they prefer that per the Netflix discussion. Yeah. And then... After that Luxor guy says, I'm not going to do that anymore because I lost my customer, does the consumer come back? Nope. The consumer just clicks on the next Luxor, which may be sub substandard, but lost the customer. So there's these correlations that are visible mm. um, to anyone who will open their eyes and go between um, 
these sectors and and as I say like to me um, we've the F&B industry has missed, has missed a trick here and um, and it's added to the pain of um, sharp staff shortages that we're talking about yeah it's added to the pain created by major market participants coming in with private equity yeah um, visa problems all these sorts of issues you know yeah. um, so um, I think that that is the the point about that is really about having this uh, ambition and desire to continue to learn um, and learn and learn every time I find an opportunity with someone who knows more about something than me to sit down and you know still not still but you know um, have to have a discussion yeah I'd like to learn more about this mm. why just on this on the people topic, you were talking about the facts that you hire people from the industry mm. sales roles in your yeah. business. Um, so there's oh, we were talking about that because I think there's there's a number of sectors at the moment, a number of um, operators are looking for people with on premise experience to go into roles that aren't on premise roles. Yeah. They look at the transferable skills or the dynamic nature of uh, their experience and see it as highly valuable. You've done that with your sales team. I mean, I'm, I'm in, a recruit, in a recruitment environment um, and I've hired three people into my team, two of which come from on-premise hospitality backgrounds with no recruitment experience. Um, I mean, that kind of activity is putting a pretty significant drain on the talent pool. In, in the greater market as well. So, I mean, there's another factor that I think, you know, is pretty important for people to consider. Mm. Yeah, so I suppose it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Like mm. there's, um, yeah, it's taking away from already what might be a contracting talent pool, um, and uh, which is one analysis. The other is that it's offering a career path for people who, you know, don't necessarily want to um, stay in, in hospitality. Uh, and the one thing that I was sort of thinking about here is um, is sort of transferability of skill sets. You know, yeah. like the um, the in my well, and as, as I say, like I'm not saying I've done brilliantly well at everything I've done, but I've moved between quite disparate sectors over a period of time and yeah. bring to my analysis of certain situations and my mathematical skills from engineering, my legal drafting skills, my negotiation skills from being a lawyer and. Um, my all-round charming schools from um, learning from guys like you, but um, <laughs> but um, it, it, it's it's this thing for uh, I I and a lot in, in my role at Time Out, I, I often have conversations with hospitality workers who are yeah. wanting to move out of the industry mm. and um, don't know how to do it, and um, and I will say to them that firstly I think that there are transferable skills. Mm. Um, because if they were, why would I be recruiting from hospitality? Um, you know, and and I, I suppose it'd be interesting in your views actually. Like, you know, what, what are the top skills that? Why would I? Why would we make that decision? Yeah. yeah. And um, and to me, like, there's one which is really um, important. One is that um, because of the advent of devices in the last ten years, uh, our ability to communicate verbally and one on one or in a room. Um, as a community is diminishing mm. so that affects younger audience um, and um, unfortunately well or fortunately in business um, being able to communicate verbally uh, in presentation and be comfortable yeah. with multiple levels of conversation is is, is how things get done mm. um, and so I find that people working in hospitality are able to have a 
conversation they're able to uh, engage people and understand their needs mm. that's what being good about you know, in hospitality is is working out how to make someone feel better um, yeah. somehow and um, and that's um, I think an amazing uh, um, trait I think the other thing um, is what I love at time out and we live by is get shit done like hospitality workers tend to know that there's a job to get done they'll get in and do it if there's a problem they will adapt and yeah. fix it um, and then talk about it later and they tend to not always but good ones tend to know how to work in teams um, while they have to they yeah. may have fisticuffs and a barney afterwards but for so long as you're on show you're working together as a team to get it done after the shift let's talk about what went wrong and how you can do better next time totally. you know and um, in business I think that's such a critical critical thing yeah I, a, I, I just brought a guy in last week to start and I worked with him for quite a period of time at Keystone and he started as a door host started as a uh, actually he started as a glassy I think and mm-hmm. moved to door and then ended up being one of the sort of senior operations guys for one of the uh, larger businesses in their portfolio yeah. but it was exactly uh, work ethic really the fact that he could just he just got stuff done you know yeah. and you can teach the basics of doing the job that we do in this organisation it's the discretionary effort and it's the willingness to learn and it's the personality over experience topic that um, I find much more valuable and I, I think across the board there's always going to be exceptions to the rule but for the most part hospitality people are pretty resilient yeah. they're pretty hard working and they're pretty uh, adaptable is absolutely the right word. They can, they don't often get uh, knocked off course when curveball balls come their way, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's no wonder so many different people or different organisations, sorry, are drawing talent out of the market. Mm. But it does place pressure on everyone else. It does, yeah. Mm. And it was interesting, like um, listening to to Justine talking about this when you guys interviewed her and yeah. how uh, she gets university students starting off in hospitality, but then studying and then moving out and her view is well can't we find a way within our own organization to create a career path and i think it's um you know as anyone who's run a business for any period of time knows like you can't do anything without a good team and so you know i really think um uh i've taken a lot of inspiration from the way that she goes about um her business and um creating that culture and pathway and um the people um, so that once you get talent in, you can give them choices, yeah. um, and ultimately, like you as an employer, need to be willing to see people grow, develop, and leave you, and um, and that's part of it. And just remember um, to come back if they ever do. And I think that um, definitely time out. We are we're not perfect, but we've done a good job on some of those things. Um, Coin the term the boomerangs. There's so many people who've left time out and come back to our organisation yeah. um, because uh, we have created a good supportive culture for the main part. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, mate, we might jump into the the standard questions because I'm pretty uh, excited to hear uh, your responses. The first one relates to. Um, who do you respect in the industry and why? And this is actually the reason we're talking because Tim Fisher obviously put you mm, down yeah. as his, his answer for this. Um, so you're not allowed to say Tim Fisher because we all know that would be an absolute lie. So who would you suggest is the person that you most respect? Well, I mean, the um, 
we're conscious of some of those uh, niceties. Um, I'm still going to name check a few people, and and I want to compliment what you guys are doing here because oh, the the uh, and, and as a judged by we've only met recently, but yeah, um, you, know, you know, Mikey Emright, Widget, um, Justine, Luke Mangan, um, they're they're all such um, you know um, champions within the industry. And yeah. person I kind of um, um, thought about and wanted to note really was um, was Tash Conti down in Melbourne. So she's the um, yeah. matriarch, I guess, behind Black Pearl. And, you know, if you look at that as an organisation and the talent it has churned out, um, yeah. you know, yeah, we're drinking Tim's drinks here. You yeah. start as a bar back um, in, 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 Brun in Brunswick Street there. And, um, and I think that, well, I think she's relevant to this discussion because in times when the industry and industry has pressures on it, um, I think that players can forget sometimes who the fundamental customer is. Yeah. And Tash, to me, um, you know, it's never the booze brand. It's never what someone else wants her to do. She always thinks about the construction worker who walks in off the street at 4.30 p.m. as much as the media personality who comes in at 1 in the morning and treats both those customers the same. Yeah. Um, so I really, like... Uh, um, wanted to note her. Um, yeah. I found her personally quite inspirational and just no bullshit on a lot of this stuff. Mm. Yeah, nice. I've only had the pleasure of meeting her once and she was uh, lovely, but you're 100% right. They're famous for having a pretty amazing culture in terms of the way that they... Mm. It's, it's very much a family in that business. Or from I probably haven't had much interaction with that business for maybe four or five years, mm. I guess. Remember people like Chris Heisted coming out of that yeah. business and yeah. some really big names, but it was such a close knit, um, close knit team for for a long time. And I'm, I I've never experienced it professionally, but the way that they would bring people through the organisation as well, and the way just the way that they had, I think there was one of the bartenders was rostered to the floor every night, for example, just to keep them engaged with the customers so that they weren't behind you know the, the, the country and. Um, creating that divide between them as being kind of the bartenders and, and not having that front of house yeah. Um, yeah. communication or, or, or contact. And I think that, you know, in my role, um, and happily it doesn't occur very often, but because, you know, we run our awards program um, and the reason we do it, particularly around bars, is to make sure that the industry keeps getting talked about, really. Yeah. It's a one team's view on what is good. It is not a definitive arbiter of what is good, but one thing I can tell you is that if the reason you're doing a venue is to win an award, that is, stop doing that yeah. right away. And the thing about um, Tash is that the awards which are um, have been tremendous and justified are not why she does it. Mm. Um, and um, and that's uh, just a good reminder, uh, which leads to those types of decisions in her business around you know, you can be, they're all going to go off and win best bartender and everything else, but you're also going to come here and, and treat our customers. Um, and if they ask you for an espresso martini or a, indeed an espresso, make it to them. Um, if you can't serve them the beer that they're after, direct them to the bar around the corner, which has it. You know, that's her philosophy, so I really respect that. Yeah, nice. Um, next one is your prediction for the industry. Um, where do you think it's heading and you can focus specifically on Sydney if you want because mm. that's obviously been a big topic of conversation yeah. Australia, Melbourne, whatever you think. Yeah, like I think um, that there's, uh, I, I'm a bit, um, I could be a bit paranoid about certain things but I do think that, that, that the industry is creaking under 
pressures that um, I haven't witnessed here before. Um, and uh, you know, I've talked about the private equity investment, um, property developers going wholesale into hospitality. Um, you know, you launch something like Barangaroo, it has a knock-on effect elsewhere. Uh, these are non-traditional participants in the sector, yeah. and it's not being driven by demand. You know, these are, it's become a supply-driven market, um, which has put pressure on recruitment talent, um, and and uh, it's not a cheap city to run in. So, mm. all those things um, taken together, when combined with visa issues and the things that you guys know about, it does make it a um, industry that has some of the signs that um, I believe are starting to manifest yeah. um, in terms of reduction in innovation. Um, I'm not naming names, but there is food quality um, diminishing, um, expenditure on capex. These yeah. are things that we're starting to notice, or I am. Um, so, you know, I do um, think about that and think about, and again, why I mentioned Tash is the way out of it is to focus on customer. Mm. And, and do a good job on that and I think it does make hard decisions like let's think about our delivery services and what that means you know um, how do we build our loyal customer base these types of things there are just no shortcuts anymore I don't mm. think um, so you know it's not necessarily the healthiest outlook um, but then when you overlay things like lockout and um, uh, you know the, the, the upside of course is massive numbers of tourists coming into the city yeah. and that's an opportunity um, and people who would rebut my own argument would say that well that's what Barangaroo has been designed for but you know I think a city um, as Dave Faulkner said you know the other day like it's a uh, city's got to be owned by it's it's, it's it's people you know so I want to go where um, things are good mm. and um, and you know to a city where you know prized areas that we're sitting in now that just caters to tourists is just not um, is dispossessive of, of its citizenry so so I guess like that's kind of um, uh, and, and you know and that's why you're seeing such talent head off overseas yeah um, because the opportunities are just easier elsewhere um, so it's not exactly an optimistic outlook I hope that um, by the work we're doing with the right to dance and you know keeping Sydney open again or getting Sydney late again as I like to say making it late again um, that will re-engender footfall back into these areas um, yeah. because I don't believe the solution is to just move everything out to Parramatta um, to sites close to people. Do you um, see that uh, as relevant to Melbourne or as relevant to Melbourne as you do in Sydney? No, it's, 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 it's really like drawing a stark comparison and I don't know the hard data but in this um, report that the Committee for Sydney has put out mm. um, and maybe I can um, flick you a note and you can reference it in the show notes as well yeah. but like um, some of the data coming out of um, from MasterCard on where we're spending money after hours in Sydney versus Melbourne is astounding. Really? In Sydney our expenditure and I don't want to misquote the stats but basically you know who's winning? Coles and Woolworths are winning massively in Sydney after 8pm because we go spend our time shopping in supermarkets you know, um, at, at a disproportionate amount to what's going yeah, on right. in Melbourne, yeah? And um, Netflix, no delivery, they lost out in that particular instance as well, people are cooking at home, you know? Um, and, uh, but the, the, the percentages are astounding. Um, and, and what's scary, and why nighttime economy needs to be a central discussion and get into everyone's vocabulary, is that 
the growth that Adelaide and Melbourne has had um, in the last few years has outstripped Sydney by by some distance. And so, if you're listening and you're a venue owner thinking, "What is happening?" You're like the, the stats are, are, are backing this up. So um, I'm sorry I didn't bring the report along, but I'll definitely um, kick yeah, you the kick you the numbers. Great. Yeah. Um, it's funny I'm looking at Melbourne and you've mentioned Barangaroo, but I'm totally thinking out loud here, and I'm so I may be wrong, but I can't think of another development like that that would be uh, that exists in Melbourne. Like I know that you've got kind yeah. of South Wharf area, South Bank, sorry, yeah. you've got along the Crown and that kind of precinct along there, but that's. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of another like highly manufactured. This Barangaroo is, is is there's nothing organic about that. Like that was a purposely purpose built entertainment precinct, and it doesn't feel organic when you're down there. It feels like you're in a bit of a, a Lego land. Um, whereas Melbourne, I, 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 my impression is that there's fewer venues. Um, mm. I might not be right statistically, but that's just what I feel. It definitely um, doesn't have that massive concentration effect that we tend to like in Sydney, you know, and, um, you know, we create Darling Harbour as a precinct and we create Barangaroo as a precinct. Um, King's Cross. Yeah. You've got, I mean, Sally yeah. Hills, you'd essentially call that a, a precinct, I guess. Like yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, that, that, the that some of the things I'm saying, um, are Sydney specific. Mm. Um, and, um, but, uh, the point about it is that, um, the vibrancy of the city um, will have direct bearing on the industry, as we all know. Um, and um, yeah, there's just other cities that are nailing it in a yeah. way that we're not. <laughs> that we're not. Um, so um, you know, let's fix it. Um, mm. Yep. Please do. You sort it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah just just give me uh, three years and a, and a, and a big check. <laughs> yeah. I'll get it done. Um, final uh, question is just around the best piece of advice that you've ever been given that you would uh, pass on. Is there one little golden nugget that you you kind of live by or you would, you would encourage others to live by? Uh, this is hard, this one, because um, it's, you know, um, you know, so, so some of the stuff I left out earlier to give this context is, um, you know, even as the founder of Time Out here, the guy that signed the original deal with the group, within two years, I'd almost been pushed out of the business um, by a board who I'd butted heads with when we did the deal. Right. And um, it was about to be turfed, but managed to hang in there um, because I brokered the second refinancing through my own network um, or found a new, our new major shareholder. It did the deal, but that had me dealt out entirely. And then, um, yeah, that was sort of 2009, but whatever we were doing still wasn't working. And um, I basically came back into the business as a sales exec without a job title, mm. working for free to um, just get revenue in through um, through advertising because um, you know, there was nothing left in the finance markets. We were at the bottom of the GFC at that stage and we didn't know it. Probably hit you up, Luke, for some advertising at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, but uh, you know, and then I just uh, worked my way up um, from that position with partners, directors who had turfed me from the business, so that was slightly awkward at board meetings, um, you know, and eventually um, uh, brought the business to maturity, yeah. um, built it, and they invited me back as a commercial director and ultimately CEO that flicked it um, back to Time Out Group last year um, and still remains in today. And the thing that um, has taught me um, is number one, I'm still a work in progress. Um, there were points in that journey where it 
um, like many of us, you can you can give up. Um, that's an easier option. And with a law degree and an engineering to fall back on, degree to fall back on, it's not like I'm short of opportunity mm. um, for financial return. But you know, the the thing that led me to really is um, the short version with that long preamble is is do your best and never give up. Um, there's a really eloquent way I can put that through someone else's words if you've got another minute and yeah, want yeah. to read it. So there's a really successful um, UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, I think, um, he's passed away since, but in defining the difference between winning on the one hand and success on the other, you can win sometimes when you sometimes shouldn't have, yeah. um, but it distinguishes itself from being successful yeah. and what is success. Um, he quotes... Um, a Major League Baseball umpire um, in a poem. Um, I'm going to read some of it, not all of it, but again, it can be linked in the show notes. Um, it's entitled The Road Ahead or The Road Behind. And it starts, There lives on the ancient claim we win or lose within ourselves. The shining trophies on our shelves can never win tomorrow's game. You and I know deeper down there's always a chance to win the crown. But when we fail to give our best, we simply haven't met the test. Giving all and saving none until the game is really won. Of showing what is meant by grit, of playing through when others quit, of playing through not letting up, it's bearing down that wins the cup. Of dreaming there's a goal ahead, of hoping when our dreams are dead, of praying when our hopes have fled, yet losing, not afraid to fall, if bravely we have given all. For who can ask more of a man than giving all within his span? Giving all, it seems, to me, is not so far from victory. Nice. And I think that that's the um, thing you talk about with resilience and and, uh, as long as you've done your best and you know you've done your best and you aspire to be better, then whatever happens will happen. Mm. And so it's the way I'd like to conclude that with that message to the New South Wales State Government that um, there beyond me are a growing group of people with that same level of resilience who um, will not give up on this fight. Awesome. No, I think there will be a, uh, uh, hopefully a growing number on the back of that, an ever-growing number on the back of that. Seems like People having listened to this, hopefully, and, and maybe compelling others to get involved. I know that there's, I think you look at the, the number of people that have attended rallies in the, in the past, and, and, and I, I believe those numbers have grown, um, you know, each time a rally has been held. So, mate, I think I'd say thank you on behalf of a lot of people for the time and effort you put in. So now you get paid for it. It's um, really out there about getting out there and trying to push a message yeah. that's going to deliver something positive for everyone, uh, or hopefully everyone. Um, so, mate, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate your time. It was awesome. Thanks for having me on. Your chat. And, um, yeah, we'll put all of the notes in the, uh, all of the information in the show notes so that people can get involved. And um, we'll put your email address in there as well, actually, so if people want to, if you're comfortable with that, I probably shouldn't be yeah, able to yeah, do that. But, that's um, fine. So they can get in touch and see how they can help. Great. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening to White Hospitality. We hope you got something out of today's show. For any questions or comments, you can find our contact details in the show notes. And please feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website, future-u.com.au. Massive thanks to Adam Bazzetto for his production skills. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.